Well, let's keep our Bibles open, shall we? At uh, John 18 and the first half of 19. We have walked through John uh, a number of months now. In the last few months, last few weeks certainly, we've been in this section where Jesus has really been training up his disciples, encouraging them, comforting them, showing them the full extent of his love and preparing them for this moment and for the moments to follow. When Christ would be arrested, when Christ would be tried, when Christ would be crucified, and then when Christ would rise from the dead. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we consider this huge chunk of text. And uh, certainly uh, pray that as I give something of an overview tonight, that we may be refreshed with an awareness of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach and impress upon our hearts the great truths of the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be changed either for the first time or further sanctified to be like him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you this question, okay? If, if a person turned round to you and claimed to be God, what, do you, what would you think of that person? What would you think of that person? I would suggest that our automatic response would either be one of ridicule or pity. We would think that such a person was perhaps simply odd. A kind of David Icke character. Do you remember him? He was a former TV presenter who appeared on a primetime TV chat show and claimed to be the son of God. When I say appeared, he was invited on. He didn't just appear. Okay, let me clarify this. Uh, Or perhaps we would think or we would pity the person because we might see that they may be mentally unwell. In mental health medicine, there is the sad condition where sufferers are symptomatic of what is called delusions of grandeur. And one of the facets of that is that there is a belief that they are either in special relationship with a deity or in fact themselves are deity. What about Jesus Christ? I mean, if you've been here with us even for a section of John's gospel, you're you're surely left in no doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. And again, we see it in this text that we're handling tonight. The question is, should we... Should we respond with ridicule or pity or something else in light of his claims to be God? This is indeed what he claims. And this is, I'm going to walk through four things tonight. The great claim, the great problem, the great solution, and the great tragedy. And the first thing we're looking at tonight in these verses is the great claim of Jesus. We're invited to see at the start of this this lead up to the crucifixion event itself, Christ claimed to be God. And here we see plainly Jesus reveals his identity as the King of glory. How does he do this? Well, first of all, by telling us his name. In verses 1 to 11, uh, we see that Jesus has taken his disciples to an olive grove called Gethsemane. And that Judas came with a detachment of Roman soldiers and some temple police. And Jesus went out to them and asked, who is it you want? And the soldiers responded, Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 
5 tells us that Jesus responded by saying, I am he. Now, for the sentence to make sense in English, it says, as it is in your Bible, I am he. But in fact, the word he is not there in the Greek. What he says is, I am. And just leaves it at that. And he does so three times. Verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. He does the exact same thing. says, I am. Now, what's significant about that? How is he telling us his name? through saying that? Well, if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, you see that this is the name, I am. This is the name that God takes for himself back then when he says to Moses, about to embark on a mission for the salvation of Israel in Egypt, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? He says, tell them, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me to you. So you see, back in, uh, in verses 1 to 11, whenever Jesus is responding to the guards and saying, I am, at the time of his arrest, he's not just identifying himself as the Jesus of Nazareth, as if, as if he just put his hand up to say, yep, that's me. No, he's saying something far more significant, something far more weighty. He is claiming the name of God for himself, claiming for himself to be the Lord of heaven and earth. Staggering, isn't it? What a claim to make. It's interesting that the founder of every religion will come and will say, let me show you how to find God. Yet Jesus Christ is the only one who turns around and says, I am God. That's quite staggering. That's quite a bold thing for someone to say. A walking, talking human being in flesh. Pity? Ridicule? Worship? Second way, by declaring his sovereignty. Who do you think has authority in this whole account? As David read it for us earlier. Who do you think has authority? Who do you think is in control? Think back to our readings. Was it the Jewish authorities? Well, no, because verses 28 to 32 show us that they're under the authority of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. That's why they take Jesus to him. And positionally, it seems in the text that perhaps they think Pontius Pilate is the most powerful man in Israel. But even he doesn't have ultimate authority. Even when Pilate says in chapter 19 and verse 10 before Jesus, when in response to Jesus' silence, he says, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? What does Jesus say? You would have no power over me were it not given you from above. Again, an absolutely staggering thing for Jesus to say. That authority does not lie even with Pilate in this situation, but indeed with God. And then in verses 28 through to the end of uh, 1916, Jesus claims that, it's, that that authority actually belongs to him. <laughs> Look with me at verse 36. When interrogated by Pilate, Jesus says, My kingdom, there's where the authority lies. My kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right. <laughs> Jesus didn't turn around and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, that's not what I was saying. He doesn't say, don't be ridiculous. You are right. 
He's claiming sovereign authority for himself. You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this very reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, he says. Again, staggering. You see what Jesus is claiming for himself. He's declaring himself, in essence, to be the sovereign king of all. A higher authority than the Jews, a higher authority than the Roman governor Pilate, but more than that, a higher authority, because Pilate is a delegated authority, isn't it? Who's the authority over Pilate? Caesar. He's claiming to be king above Caesar. Staggering. Pity? Ridicule? Praise? What is there to authenticate these claims? Has to be a valid question, doesn't it? How do we know he's not suffering from delusions of grandeur or else simply pretending? Well, by showing us, thirdly, his glory. Look with me at verse 6. It's so significant, we can't pass by this at all. When Jesus said, I am he, what happened? What happened to the troops? They drew back and fell to the ground. A detachment, a Greek word, which is a formal name for a troop of Roman soldiers. Anything from a hundred to a thousand. You know what that tells us? That there are lots of them. Lots of them. And given Jesus' popularity with the crowds, these guys, in other words, the temple police and this Roman detachment, they are taking no chances. Sure, they may not have some kind of battle or fight in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they're about to handcuff Jesus and take him through the streets of Jerusalem, which would be extremely busy, even in the night during this time of Passover, when hundreds of thousands of people descended on the city for that festival. Now, don't miss this as well. These are imperial troops, okay? Tough guys who would have been through various wars and faced various battles themselves. And what happens to them? They're approached by Jesus, who again goes out to meet them, showing them who's in control straight away. They're approached by Jesus, an unarmed carpenter, who says, I am, and a whole battalion is floored. Lord, why? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. The King of heaven come down to testify to that very truth and even demonstrate it for people to see. And as he reveals his name and his sovereignty and his identity... Jesus, in some way here, it's almost like he just, before he goes in meekness and in weakness to the cross, gives one little flex of his divine bicep and a battalion is absolutely decked. He allows almost the tiniest slither of his glory to just emanate from himself and everyone is on the floor. Why? Because he is who he says he is. And this leads us into the second point, which shows us this is our greatest problem. 
You see, nobody who is sinful can stand in the presence of a holy God. No one, can, no one who is sinful can stand in the presence of God when his glory is revealed, even a slither of it. Everybody loses their footing. Even for those of us who are well versed in the reading of the scriptures, we'll know that there are some heroes of the faith in the Old Testament who lose their footing, even in Isaiah 6. When the Lord appears to Isaiah, Isaiah hits the ground. Woe is me, he says, I'm ruined. Literally, he's saying, in the presence of God, I'm coming apart. (laughs) And let me ask you this, if, if neither strong men, nor even outstanding servants of God, who are not perfect, still sinful, if they couldn't stand before Jesus, when his glory was veiled, how will we? ever stand before him when his glory is revealed in all of its majesty and in all of his strength that's quite a problem that's quite a dilemma that we all face it's a question we all face in light of this text and the question that we should be asking ourselves at this point what, what can we do then to get rid of our sin? Can we self-atone? Can we make amends? Is a common question that people ask. What can I do about this? And it seems that when we want to change something or get rid of something, some kind of sin problem in our lives, the first instinct is to try and do something to make amends. We see that in every realm, don't we? We see it in books and literature. Lady Macbeth, for example desperately trying to wash the bloodstains from her hands after the death of King Duncan, but to no avail. They won't go away. Her guilt remains. Or Brian E. Tallis and Ian McEwan's book, Atonement, made into a movie a couple of years ago. She invested her whole life trying to write a book and rewrite history in order to make good for some of the foolish things that she had done at the age of 13. Can we rewrite our own lives in order to kind of give ourselves a happy ending well no even Bryony knows that writing a novel and imagining reconciliation with the one she sinned against cannot bring atonement we see this in real life too it's not just in the movies well Ryan he's a Christian he's not a Christian sorry He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but he doesn't believe in Jesus. He's polite, he's really kind, always prefers to hear how your day went rather than tell you about his. And he may not have committed any kind of scandalous sin, as it were, but we've heard him admit that he's not perfect and certainly feels guilty about some of the mistakes in his life. He says, time is a healer, though, is his favorite phrase. So can time even heal Ryan to the extent that he can stand in the presence of a holy God or what about Eve Eve is a seriously good cardiologist just about to sit her final exam before applying for a consultant's post she'll get one no problem her boss says she is the model professional but behind the professional persona is a woman who is racked with guilt. She had an abortion when she was at uni and has never gotten over it. She believes that the extra special way that she 
cares for her two children that she has now will somehow make up for the mistakes in the past. Will the way she treats others help and bring atonement in this kind of situation? The answer in all of these examples is no. We cannot self-atone. But we are not left without hope. You see, just as this text brings us face to face with the great problem of our sin, it also tells us of the great solution to our problem. And that's the third thing we'll see, that Christ will take our place. He will satisfy God's justice by taking our sin and the punishment due for our sin upon himself so that everyone who listens to him and who believes the truth concerning him and puts their faith and trust actually in him can have their sins atoned for. They can have their sins washed away. Their relationship with God truly restored and even have the very innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the innocence of his perfect, sinless life credited to their account. That's the great solution. And we see it in two ways in this text. First of all, he says, I will exchange my cup for yours. This is propitiation, okay? Big word. Basically means he's going to satisfy the Father's wrath. Jesus will drink the cup of the Father's wrath instead of us so that he will take that from our hands and put in our hands instead a cup of salvation. Let me show you. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter puts up a fight. And remarkably, Jesus is the one who breaks it up. And in doing so, he says in verse 11, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, this is no throwaway comment. It's saturated with meaning, and it really helps us understand Christ's death. You see, in the Old Testament, the cup represents the full force of God's divine judgment on the sin of the world. And in Isaiah 51 verse 17, it says, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to the dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Okay? It's a cup of wrath, a cup of divine judgment. And we wonder why. This is the cup that Jesus is going to drink on our behalf. And we wonder why in the other gospel accounts of Jesus in Gethsemane, he prays with sweat drops of blood. And the prospect even of taking this cup in his hands, though he does it willingly, is enough to make him shrink back before he prays, yet not what I will, but your will be done. This is a cup that Jesus will drink. A, a cup of divine wrath, a cup of punishment for sin, even though what? He has no sin. No sin. His innocence in this text is one of the things that is most patently clear for us throughout. If you see in verses 20 to 21, for example, Jesus is essentially saying there, I've done nothing wrong. They're hitting him. 
I've, I've done nothing wrong. Somebody testify. What did I do wrong? Tell me. They don't. Because he didn't. And then in verses 38, and then chapter 19, verse 4, and 19, verse 6, Pilate announced three times, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He's innocent. Patently so. It's a terrible trial. So unjust in itself. So, but if he is innocent, we ask, why then is he drinking this cup? Because he does so in our place. He drinks the cup of our wrath so that we who believe in him can drink from the cup of salvation that is spoken of in Psalm 116. I will lift the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Jesus is taking our place. He is taking, he is there in Gethsemane, you understand, with a cup that for him is bone dry. And it's as if in that moment, the Lord God in heaven, the Father takes each and every one of our cups and just starts pouring them in. And our cups are filled to the brim. They are overflowing with divine wrath and divine justice that's coming our way. And he takes the cup and he pours, uh, pours them out into Jesus' cup. You know, cup after cup after cup of divine wrath and punishment for our sin. So that his cup, which was bone dry before, is now full to overflowing and it's our cup. And as Spurgeon says, Jesus seized this cup and with one tremendous draft of love drank damnation dry. And at the same time, for those who put their faith and trust in him, thrusts into our hand the cup of salvation that we might know joy. He says, I will exchange my cup for yours. This is the great solution to our sin. The second thing, I will lay down my life for yours. And this is substitution. Illustrations of Jesus' substitutionary atonement absolutely saturate this passage also. In verse 8, Jesus, as the good shepherd, lays down his life and secures the freedom of his disciples who believe in him. It's me you want. Let them go. This was to fulfill what Jesus said earlier. And Jesus had said many times before that he would die in their place. And then in verse 14, John reminds us that Caiaphas, again, an editor's note, if you like, but not incidental. John reminds us that Caiaphas is the one who said, oh, it would be good if one man died for the people. In other words, in their place. And then even as the cock crowed at Peter's third denial of Jesus, we're immediately taken back to John 13, 37, where just hours before Peter had said, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus responds saying, no, no, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Which immediately brings to his mind. So Peter's saying, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I will die for you. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I will die for you. I will die for you. One more. Look at verse 40. Or verse 39. Pilate says, Your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas. The guilty one. 
he's the one that's released the innocent one he's what condemned led off to be crucified the innocent son of God the irony of it all Barabbas means son of the father son of the father one son of the father is released though he is guilty another is sent to be crucified and killed though he is innocent this is what Jesus does for us despite our great problem that no one can stand no sinful person can stand in the presence of a holy God when he is revealed in his majesty and in his glory yet Jesus offers this great solution of propitiation and substitution I will drink your cup I'll exchange my cup for your cup and I will lay down my life for yours and I wonder if we grasp just what significance that has for us what that means for us tonight that instead of flooring us Jesus Christ went to the cross to take our judgment day if you like early so that on that judgment day when Christ comes we can stand knowing our sin has been put behind us and that he did this for us and this this is what we know the king of heaven came down and as he said for this very reason he was born and for this he came into the world to testify to this truth to testify to this and everyone on the side of truth listens to me he says are you listening your life depends on it more than you could ever imagine <laughs> everyone on the side of truth listens to me Jesus says You know what this tells me, that question, or that statement? I think the very next, the, the, the very thing this text shows us is that not everyone will believe in him. Despite this great solution being offered. And I think that for us shows us the fourth thing that we see in this text, the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy of them all, to reject the truth. And believe the lie. Jesus is quite patently set before us tonight in this text as the only hope. The only hope for any sinful person to ever hope to stand in the presence of a holy God. Only because he dies taking all of our sin and punishment upon himself and only because he transfers to our life account his sinless perfection. And the great tragedy is some reject it. And maybe tonight you're here, you're not a Christian, maybe you're tempted to reject it. Maybe responding like Pilate. Ha! Truth? What is truth? Nobody can know if that's true, is essentially what Pilate's saying. Jesus declares it. Pilate says, What is truth? How does Pilate respond immediately? Well, he, he goes out end of conversation out he goes to speak to the crowd again it seems that he decides that Jesus is just some teacher of abstract feel, uh, philosophical questions really to which no one can find the answer what's truth 
How sad, how tragic that he does not seek the answers from the only one who holds the answer, Jesus Christ. And how ironic is it that in this text we see the one who is charged with being the judge, with being the one who determines what the truth is, dismisses it, even in the very presence of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Please do not let that be you tonight. Please do not be dismissive of this truth. Listen to him. And believe in him. That he is who he says he is. Or maybe you're tempted, not necessarily to be like Pilate, but to be like the Jews who also tragically reject the one they were looking for really saying oh well I prefer my life the way it is thanks we see that don't we with people who say well I'd rather have my religion and keep it that way I prefer my self styled worship of my self made gods that's what the Jews are essentially saying in verse 28 and Oh, how ironic it is that they seek to have, well, we see in verse 28, the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid, (laughs) to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. Why? They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. The Passover. The Passover, which from Exodus points to one lamb slaughtered for the people. So that they might live. And what are they doing? Oh well we would, just, we would like to get this crucifixion thing done and dusted pretty quickly. Pilate if that's okay with you we have a meal to eat. Oh how tragic. All the while as they reject Jesus. Excluding themselves from that heavenly Passover that is to come. How tragic. They prefer their religion their self-styled worship of self-made gods. And even in chapter 19, verse 15, they give up the heavenly king in preference for an earthly king. This is an overt rejection of of God Almighty who was their king. This was a theocracy. God was their king. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but who? Yahweh, the I am, Caesar. Tragic. Don't let that be you tonight, please. Don't let that be you if you want your self-made worship, your self-styled worship of your self-made gods, whether it's money, sex, power, whatever it is. Do not prefer to worship them and sacrifice your life to them in the place of the one revealed to you tonight who is your only hope. Your money will not save you on judgment day. The amount of pleasure you have had in sexual relations will not save you on judgment day. Do 
the extent to which you have built up your reputation over the years, made it to the top of the ladder in whatever field of work you're in will not save you on judgment day. None of these things can atone for sin. Only Jesus can. Have you listened to him? Have you put your faith and trust in him? He's held up for you. Pilate brings Jesus back out in front of the whole crowd. Behold the man. Shall I crucify your king? Yes. Don't let that be you tonight. Listen to him. Hear his words of truth. See what great a salvation he holds out for you. You don't need to do a thing to atone for your sin. You don't need to try harder. You need to you need to fall on your face and come before him and think upon him, not with pity, not with ridicule, but with thanksgiving and with worship and with the offering of your very lives, knowing that in him is life. In him is life. Let your life not be a great tragedy. May you know for yourself the possession of this great solution to our sin. A heart made right with God. Let's bow our heads.